All right, well, my name is Matt, and um, I have the joy of preaching the sermon for it this morning. Uh, I started coming to Mercy House uh, when I was uh, a freshman at UMass, and I graduated uh, this past spring, so it's been a few years now. Uh, I now work in the area. I live in Hadley with a bunch of guys, and was graciously invited to give the sermon for this morning. All right, so I, I know there are a few new people here this morning, so I'll just do a sh- short recap of what we've been going through. We've been studying the, the book of Matthew, and uh, these past, past few chapters, we've seen Jesus display his power over the storm and the sea. We've seen miraculous healings over sickness and disease from him his authority to cast out demons from people, and even his authority to forgive sin. He is a man of great influence, yet we're about to see him surround himself with an unusual group of people. He'll even get called out by the religious leaders for doing this. But Jesus has a very specific purpose for what he's doing. He wants the way he treats people to be imitated, and he wants people to know that God cares very deeply about the heart. So let's look at verse 9 together. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under your seats. I, I highly encourage you to follow along with me. So starting in chapter 9, verses, verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 9, it reads, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, anyone who might have witnessed what just happened would be really shocked. Jesus just approached a tax collector and invited him to join his ministry. Tax collectors, they were not people who others thought highly of. They were despised and resented, and understandably so. During this time, the Roman Empire occupied Capernaum, and tax farmers, usually Roman, would employ local Jews to be the ones collecting the tax for them. Matthew was one of of these employees collecting taxes from his own people, from these foreign invaders as most Jews saw them and enjoying a a wealthier income than most, which often involved overcharging and pocketing the surplus. So the kind of message that Matthew is giving off to people is one of supporting a violent and brutish empire that oppressed the Jewish people and then swindling his own from their money rabbinical writings classify tax collectors alongside robbers. It was betrayal to sell your services to the foreign oppressor and, and make money at the expense of your own countrymen. Not to mention the shame and dishonor that it would bring on your own family. It's not hard to see the distaste that people would have towards someone like Matthew. Yet, this resented tax collector is exactly who Jesus approaches. Now, Matthew would definitely have heard of Jesus before. You've got a man who has been healing people by his touch, 
can tell paralyzed people to walk and has been teaching with more authority than the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. A couple chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, and this should be on the screens up there, it reads, So his fame, Jesus, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew would have known who was standing in front of his little tax booth. I wonder what was going through his mind. Maybe he thought Jesus was about to rebuke him for his life decisions and, and make an example out of him, like maybe others have often or likely done. Uh, I wonder what he was even feeling. Was it guilt or shame? What do you even say in this moment when you're face to face with Jesus? Apparently, you don't say a thing. It's Jesus who initiates by saying, follow me. At this moment, Jesus is inviting Matthew to, be, to join his ministry. Jesus wants Matthew to follow him and to learn from him and be changed forever. Now, this would have been a complete shocker to the people around him, especially to Matthew. Why on earth would Jesus invite Matthew to follow him? My brother and I recently watched Taylor Swift's Miss Americana documentary, and there was a, a scene that really stood out to me in it, and it was when Taylor Swift would meet with some of her fans. They would approach her, and she would say something like, hi, how are you, what's your name? And they would just melt in front of her. They would lose all bodily function and would stumble over even their own name. There was this one couple who went up to Taylor Swift, and the girl was totally transfixed on Taylor, uh, while the guy looks at her and looks at Taylor Swift and says, I've been waiting to do this in front of you. He gets down on one knee and he proposes to his girlfriend right in front of Taylor Swift. Meanwhile, the girl, the girlfriend, she's barely taking her eyes off of Taylor Swift and she's, she has no idea what's going on, just complete shock and awe, like, oh my, oh my goodness. And I was just surprised that, oh my, like, this is the state that she was in, in, in Taylor's presence. And now, I'm not saying that Matthew had the same reaction in front of Jesus, but I imagine he might have been in a similar state of awe of being approached by Jesus. He is face-to-face -face with someone whose fame has been spreading all over Syria and the surrounding reason, regions. And now, for us, I, I wonder why this so often isn't our reaction when we're confronted by Jesus, especially in his word. Why are we rarely awestruck by God when he's speaking to us? If we really believe that he is speaking to us in this word, why, why are we not in awe about it? Are we listening to him? Do we hear him? Do we only give him five, ten minutes in the morning, if that, and, and miss out on how much awe that he wants to spark in us so much that maybe we're left speechless? This should be our heart posture when we're 
in God's presence and, and reading his, his word to us. Awe struck. And if it's not, then we need to plead with him, God, would you change my heart? I, I want to see you. I want to be awed by you because he wants to awe us. Let's look at the next verse because I think we see Jesus helping people do just that. In verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Luke's gospel account even tells us that Matthew threw a great feast for Jesus and there was a large company of of people there. Uh, Most likely the people that showed up were Matthew's tax collector friends and other people who might have been looked down upon in society. If you see that word sinners and thinking, wait, aren't we all sinners? Yes, you're right. But in this context, it's being used to distinguish someone who's living in more blatant sin. Some examples of these people at the time might have been prostitutes or lawbreakers or tax collectors. People who likely have the same reputation as Matthew. Despised, rejected, disqualified from living a holy life. Yet it's these very people that Jesus surrounds himself with, which was revolutionary. No one has, at the time, no one had ever seen anyone heal people by his touch and, and teach with more authority than the scribes and Pharisees. But actually sitting down with them, with the lowest of the low, and sharing a meal? Why? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, apparently, the Pharisees are there too, and they wonder the same question. Let's read verse 11, because it says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when I first read this, I wanted to give the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt Maybe they're genuinely curious and really wondering, Jesus, what, what's going on here? Why, why are you doing this? But when considering the larger context between the Pharisees and Jesus, I had to rethink this because many times when Jesus is ministering to people, they show up and with opposition try to trap Jesus in his own words. John Chapter 11, verses 47 to 48, and this I think should also be on the screen, tells us what they were afraid of. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jealousy. They were jealous that Jesus was becoming more popular than them. So thinking back on the passage that we just read earlier, I I don't think that the Pharisees were genuinely curious as to what Jesus was doing. I think they were coming from a place of jealousy and disapproval of Jesus' actions and 
not to mention their self-righteous hearts. One thing to understand about the Pharisees is that they puffed themselves up so much with self-righteousness to the point of condemning other people who didn't follow their own example. Jesus warns them of this in Matthew 23, 27 to 28, when he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, are full of wickedness. I think this might inform us on what they're thinking when they see Jesus eating with these people. Who, who is this man? Does he think he's better than us? Luke's account even tells us that they grumbled or complained to his disciples. They had judged Jesus before even hearing him answer their question. Let's not do the same and see what his response is in, in verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. I think explaining what Jesus means by I desire mercy and not sacrifice will help us greatly understand the sentence before it and after it. The center of Jesus' words here is the heart behind the surrounding statements and in fact reveals to us a big part of Jesus' own heart himself. First off, one definition of mercy is the moral quality of feeling compassion and especially of showing kindness and love towards someone in need. So for Jesus to say, I desire mercy, means in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, God reveals what he's like for one of the first times to Moses, where he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to third and fourth generation. Now, we have to remember that God is holy and perfect and just. It is good for him to punish evil and wickedness. We should expect him to do so. And I think it's easy for, to see God doing that throughout the Old Testament, but equally important, if not more, and sometimes overlooked, is the heart that God shares to us and the restoration that he promises in the scriptures. A God merciful. He is full of mercy. That is the first word he uses to describe himself to Moses. Merciful and desiring to show compassion and help the needy. When Jesus responds to the Pharisees, he is actually quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, 
when God says to Israel, for I desire steadfast love, or mercy in the Greek, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. There seems to be a connection being drawn here between mercy and the knowledge of God. And I think this is because God loves to reveal himself to us, especially his own heart. Uh, A couple chapters later in Hosea, in chapter 11, verse 8, God says to his people, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is the heart of God, tender and kind, disposed to steadfast love and mercy. He loves it when you show mercy because he loves showing mercy. God is not an idea to gain a bunch of knowledge about. He is an experiential being that reveals himself to us through experience, mercy being one. That is why there's a connection between mercy and the knowledge of God. When you practice mercy, you demonstrate that you understand mercy. And when you understand mercy, you understand more of the heart of God. This is the greatest experiential knowledge that you could ever gain. However, I do not think mercy is often a natural response or comes easy to us. A few weeks ago, I was at work and I got a text from one of my housemates. Hey Matt, I uh, ate one of your tuna sandwiches and I'm sorry for not asking, but... Uh, I hope you don't mind. And I read that, and I was like, (laughs) (laughs) well, let's just say my, okay, so I prepare five tuna sandwiches (laughs) for each day of the week, and usually don't make any leftover. So losing even one is a pretty big deal, all right? And so my first response was not, oh, Man, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I could help you out. Dude, no worry, don't worry about it. No, my, my first response was, who opens up our fridge, sees a container of tuna sandwiches, and thinks it'd be okay to eat one? What, what, what was he even thinking? Was he even thinking about me? Anger. My, my initial reaction was, was anger. I, I was not even considering the kind of state that he might have been in which in fact wasn't a great one. He, at the time, was night, and, and uh, it was having a harder time making food for himself. But no, I, I can't show mercy because my tuna sandwiches are too important to me. <laughs> my, my focus was not on other people. It was on myself. Does this sound familiar at all? I think this is more naturally our reaction when people wrong us or not think about us in the way that we might want them to. I would argue that this is even a very similar heart posture as the Pharisees, which was actually something that was uh, a bit hard for me to realize. Even as I was writing this, I was having difficulty thinking that I was at all like the Pharisees. 
I, I believe this is true, but was having trouble articulating it. And I was praying to God, asking, Lord, would you help me with this? Is even is this even something you want me to say? And then it hit me like a slap on the face. I was having trouble because I couldn't relate to the Pharisees, which is exactly what the problem is. I couldn't relate I couldn't relate to them because I had doubts that I'm even like them, which I think is true for many of us. We have a hard time relating to the Pharisees because we conclude that I'm not as bad as as them, falling into the same trap that that they were. That's what I was doing. I was telling myself, I'm not like them, and I would never eat someone else's tuna sandwich. Are you kidding me? Comparing myself to them and coming out better off. If, if these are the things that we bring to us, our hearts would be no different than the Pharisees. And if that is the case, then the same warning falls on us. We are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, we appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, we are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. God is not pleased by self-righteous, prideful self-righteousness, and and Jesus will later tell us that he has not come to call those kinds of people. He has come to call sinners who acknowledge their sin. Jesus just told the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Which I think... God, being full of mercy, explains this sentence. He is so full of compassion and kindness that he sees the sick and flows with desire to help them. We, like these people in our text, are sick. Whether we are like the sinners and the tax collectors who live in more overt unrighteousness or the Pharisees who appear to be righteous but inwardly are full of hypocrisy. Sin has put us in this state of spiritual deadness. However, the the man who tells storms to stop and they stop, heals by his word and tells demons to flee and they flee and will later display his power over even death in his resurrection is standing in the same room as these people and I believe is even with us in the pre- this present day to do, too. He wants to heal you and me. He wants to take our sin that is like scarlet and make it white as snow. Now, I don't want to forget the word sacrifice. This word can be understood as an offering or service to God. In Hosea 6.6, we saw sacrifice correlating to burnt offerings, which were a kind of sacrifice to God. The ancient Jews would often seek to please God, earn favor, and be forgiven of sin by sacrificing animals and making burnt offerings to God. In fact, sacrifices were according to the Old Testament law, so the sacrifice itself wasn't inherently wrong, However, the Jews, they missed something. 
Hosea chapter 5, verse 6 even tells us, With their flocks and herds they shall go seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They were really good at offering sacrifices, but they were missing the main point. I think Hebrews chapter 10 explains what? Verse 1 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They, they had it all wrong. The, the blood of bulls and goats could never forgive. They could never make a person righteous or put them in right standing before God. The people were too focused on their own self-righteousness that they abandoned mercy and gave up the knowledge of God. They gave up truth and steadfast love for a self-centered sacrifice. Now, don't get me wrong, there are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Mark chapter 12, verse 33 says, And to love with all the heart, and with all understanding, and with all strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In this verse, we see love, and the heart, and understanding, and strength. So what exactly is the difference between this kind of sacrifice and what the Pharisees might have been doing? Do you know that saying, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life? Do you know why people say that? It's because if you wake up every day and go to work and loving, and loving it, it won't feel like boring and meaningless work. It will be joyful and exciting and fun your heart will be happy as you work with renewed strength and understanding. This is the difference. God is more pleased when your heart is in it. He wants sacrifices to be done with the heart and doesn't want us to think that the action itself is pleasing to him. And this applies today, too. God does not want us to mechanically show up to church and read our Bibles and pray and tithe he wants us to do them joyfully. It is the heart behind these things that matters. This is because God is relational, not transactional. Well, what if you don't feel joyful or happy to do these things? What if you're feeling discouraged, beat down, or brokenhearted? Well, God is pleased by that kind of heart too. King David carrying the weight of murdering Uriah and stealing his wife Bathsheba writes in Psalm 51 about the guilt and the shame that he feels toward God. He cries out to God to forgive him and includes this bit with a, with a heavy heart. Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. 
David is telling us that sacrifices pleasing to God are not only a joyful heart that loves to do good, but also a broken and discouraged heart. If that is you, God does not despise you. He wants you all the more. He wants to embrace you as a father does his child, and he wants to heal you. God is relational, not transactional. The transaction between God has already been happened. Has already happened. It's been completed. Jesus, he willingly went to the cross to die as a substitute for you. He knew sin would ultimately lead to death and knew that we would not be able to do anything about that. Sin, it it deceives us, it deteriorates us, it lies to us, and we so often believe it. And it has the potential to separate us from God in this life and the next forever. But God, out of pure love, showed mercy. The greatest act of mercy that mankind has ever seen was done by a man as he breathed his last few breaths on a cross. He absorbed the sin of mankind and died and was buried with it. This is how Jesus ultimately heals the sick. Storms continue to rage. People get sick again. Demons come back and mess with us. But the sickness of sin will not have the say on, will not have the final say on those who believe in Jesus. Please consider these things. I know it might sound weird or crazy, but if what is in this book is true, then there are serious uh, consequences in our lives right now and serious warnings. But there's also an unimaginable potential for joy and peace and life, real life, a life that is pleasing to God because of faith in his son Jesus, a life that God rejoices with you when you're happy and where God is close with you when you are crushed in spirit and brokenhearted. Going back to these heart postures, if you are somewhere in between, maybe feeling apathetic or numb, God can work with that too. I'm sure that's what the Pharisees were feeling. And what does Jesus say? He gives them homework, go and learn what this means, and quotes scripture. Jesus is giving them this remedy because it's the word of God that pierces numb feelings, melts hearts of stone, and brings dead emotions back to life. The word has the power to rejuvenate us. I have also found it helpful to pray to God and confess that my heart is not in it. God, I feel nothing towards you or anyone else. Would you give me eyes to see people the way you see people? Would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Would you return the joy of you saving me from my sin? This is a dangerous prayer because I think, I believe God shows up and he will heal. Matthew believed this. He left everything to follow Jesus. 
He believed that Jesus had come to heal him, to put back the broken pieces of his life, and boy, did God do just that for Matthew. He even went on to write one of the four gospel accounts that we're reading today. Now, I think knowing why God does not desire heartless sacrifices shares insight on Matthew 9, verse 13, the last verse of our passage for today. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you know why Jesus did not come to call the righteous? If he did, we would all be in trouble. No one is righteous, nor was or is there any way for us to obtain it ourselves. Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Being a Christian is not a convenient belief that punishes bad people to hell and rewards good people with heaven. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They were disqualifying people for salvation based on profession or lifestyle while living like they had earned God's good graces. I think we do this too. We judge by appearances and justify ourselves. But I, I want to make this clear. The only people that are disqualified from salvation are those that think they deserve it. This is why Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We don't deserve anything, and no amount of sacrifices can change that. Rather, we can show mercy and have compassion on those in need and help them. Why does Jesus want us to do this? Because he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus came to have mercy on sinners. He is telling us that, he's telling the Pharisees that he wants them to show mercy on those in need because he himself is doing the same. And he's telling us the same thing today. Jesus does not want us to think that we can earn anything from God or think that we deserve anything from him. He wants us to show mercy to other people because we are sinners, broken and helpless, but we were shown mercy by God. We are sinners, but the good news is that we are who Jesus has come to call. Why? Because the sick need a doctor, and he loves healing people. He loves to show mercy, mercy that died in your place. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, sorry, <laughs> eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every week at Mercy House, we take communion, and what we're doing is proclaiming the great mercy that God 
has shown us in Jesus' death. We also do it as a way to wait expectantly for his return. If you don't share this hope, then this really is just a cracker and some juice. And so I would much rather you think upon these things that I've been saying and ask yourself, could this be true? You can even ask God in prayer. There will also be some people in the back that would love to pray for anybody. Really, they would really love to pray for you. In closing, the Pharisees missed out on what was most important. They believed they were righteous by their own deeds and sacrifices. They missed out on the mercy of the gospel of Jesus because they refused to show mercy to others. Jesus will later warn them again in in Matthew chapter 3, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The weightier matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are the attributes that are closely tied to God's character. And he delights when not only we grow in our knowledge of them, but also practice them. If you were wondering earlier, is Jesus simply telling us to show mercy because he showed mercy? I would say, yes, that is true. That's one layer. But I would even go a step further and say that another layer is when we practice godly attributes like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, we become more like God and act in a manner that is aligned with the way he acts. Since the creation story in Genesis 1 tells us that we were created in the image of God, God made us a reflection, God made us a reflection of himself. When we become more like God, we become more like we were created to be. And so when we practice justice and mercy and faithfulness, we become more like we were created to be, a reflection of God himself. I will now, I'm going to pray for us to close, and then you can come up and take communion. You can uh, form two lines and just come down the aisle and go back. We'll start with the front rows and just follow suit. So please pray with me now. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the mercy that you have shown us on the cross. God, we are so undeserving of it, and yet you lavish us with your love, and you do so joyfully. God, you love to show your kindness and mercy towards us, God. Lord, we so often do not reciprocate it to other people. We are prideful and self-righteous, and do not like to think of others. But God, I pray that, that you would melt that heart of stone, that that would not be us, that we would be like Jesus who surrounds himself with the sinners and the tax collectors and the people that are despised. I pray that we would go to those people, find them out in our daily lives and be with them and see them as real people who need you, Jesus. God, I pray that we would show mercy because you showed mercy to us. 
In your holy name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.